Good afternoon. This is Gary Kavner. I am here today taking the place of John McGurk, who is unavoidably uh, detained somewhere else. I am here with the lovely Neve, who is taking the place of Sarah Ryan. Neve, how have you been? I'm good. You're making me sound like someone in the Rose of Julie. Yeah, I'm trying. I am, for those of you who listen to my normal podcast, think of this as the third chance you'll have this week to uh, hear me talk about something, filling in for someone else. <laughs> Good stuff, Jesse. That in honor of John, we should dedicate this episode to talking about all the great things that the British Empire has done. But Neve was uh, not really up for that option. No, that met with some strong resistance, I think, didn't it, Gary? I thought it would put forward the spirit that John embodies. <laughs> anyway, well, let's, let's go for that right now. Anyway, to start off with, we have to talk about the event that Gript is planning with Free Speech Ireland. We have rented out the RDS. I believe it's September the 16th, a Saturday. It will be an event on free speech. We have Michael Schellenberger coming over. We have Helen Joyce, the former, uh, she was an editor for The Economist. We have Senator Sharon Keoghan. We have Kevin Sharkey. We've got Ben Scallon. Uh, Niall Boylan, John, of course, will be there. And I believe we will be announcing um, a number of other speakers as we get closer to it. It's going to be all about free speech, the hate speech bill that's coming up. It should be a great day out. It starts at one. Uh, we will include a link to buy tickets um, in the description of this podcast. They're not terribly expensive. I think they're 10 or 15 euro. They are going quite fast, though. And the RDS is a big venue. Certainly an expensive venue, let me say that, but uh, may not be big enough. So I would strongly suggest if you're interested, uh, pick them up as quickly as you can. Yeah, big interest in this, Gary, isn't there? Great to see the tickets are you know, in a month away from the, from the event itself taking place. Great to see the interest, the ticket selling. I think that perhaps the government underestimated the public interest in this bill once people understood what was actually in the bill. And then I think you have this whole international aspect, really, that free speech and attacks on free speech uh, have become like a really big um, issue right across Europe, right across the world. And it's an issue where people want to hear you know, the views of people like Shankill and Schellenberger and others and the people who are kind of standing up against uh, attempts to quell free speech. If there's anything recent news has shown us, shown us is that there is there are a few things that will cause the Irish government to do things quicker than international attention being brought on them in a negative fashion. Uh, from from legislative bills to crime in Dublin, it just moves them in a particular way. Well, it, it, it does and it doesn't. I think you'll remember Simon Harris and other uh, members of government have this really pathetic response to um, criticisms by Elon Musk and I think Donald Trump Jr. Uh, of the upcoming legislation. And, you know, they kind of said, well, if they're criticising it, you must be doing something right. And I thought it was like the lamest response a supposedly serious person could give to a bill which is actually genuinely problematic and genuinely could be used to suppress people's right to express their own opinions. But all this is going to be trashed out anyway at the RDS. Uh, I think it's going to be a great day. I think it's going to be a lot of interesting things to discuss. And I think people are looking forward to kind of getting together and being able to listen to the speakers and chat about uh, the subject. No, it should be a, a very positive thing. It's good to have people 
uh, both in Ireland and from outside, willing to to come and listen and talk about it. And it should be a good, positive day. On Simon Harris, actually, when he made those comments, it reminded me not of an adult politician, but mm-hmm. you know those teenagers who see that someone is doing something and then say, I'm just going to do the opposite thing because I'm not a sheep like them, and never kind of think that if they only do what other people dislike, they are absolutely, yeah, yeah. very easy to to control. Yeah, but, um, but that's the problem with Simon Harris in general. Rest any more time on it. That's the problem with him in general. He he doesn't seem like a serious person. He doesn't seem like a, a grown adult who's sitting at the cabinet table. It's all almost these kind of childish, peevish reactions. Everything that are. Well, we did have a very good. Uh, we did have a very good reaction from a minister today, a minister who wasn't afraid to come out and say that you know sometimes in order to have debate in society, there's going to have to be a cost, and mm-hmm. they are very happy to to pay that cost, or more exactly, they're very happy for the public to pay that cost. This is, of course, uh, for those who haven't seen it. Uh, Pascal had uh, he was asked a question by. Uh, ben Scallon about the public funding of NGOs and you know, that, that some people might take issue with their money being sent to NGOs who advocate for positions that they don't support. So I think we'll put the clip in here so you guys can see it. It's only a, a minute or two long and then um, we'll give a bit of a discussion about it. Minister, you previously said that many NGOs with your government funds are engaged in advocacy and we know that these groups often engage in political campaigning to support uh, your government's stated goals. For example, your government funds INR, which explicitly campaigns for hate speech laws. So is it really right that you should be giving taxpayer money to activists who promote controversial political ideas? So the promotion uh, of uh, political debate uh, within a, uh, a democracy uh, is, I think, an important function. Uh, and I have to say, in my experience of us funding NGOs uh, and supporting them and the money that they need to continue with their advocacy services, they do need that support in order to make the case for the uh, uh, important parts of our society that they are aiming to champion. Uh, and, and, and many, many, many times uh, those advocates will use funding that is available to them that to make arguments and to make the case uh, for their own interests in such a way that can occasionally be critical of government. And uh, that is part of having a vibrant NGO sector within a democracy. So uh, I do believe the way in which we support a diverse set of organisations is appropriate and um, vibrant debate uh, on sensitive matters within a democracy is, I believe, intrinsically important. And uh, I believe our support of those organisations is really appropriate. But do you accept that it's wrong that somebody should be paying through their taxes to support an organisation which is campaigning on issues that they may fundamentally oppose? There are Irish citizens who are vehemently opposed to, taking the example I mentioned earlier, the hate speech bill, but who their money is being used to advocate for a policy that, that they're against. How, how is that democratic? I think it's a step too far to say the Irish public are vehemently against Something well, like well, I'm, I'm something, talking about something. individuals. Oh, let, let, let me I'm, just finish off. I think you're taking it a step too far to say that the Irish public are vehemently against the legislation in relation to uh, speech and use of speech in such a way that could be conducive to hate crime. I see no evidence of that. 
what I know the Irish public are supportive of is um, vibrant debate and debate about issues that are important in politics and society. And sometimes that can come at a price and sometimes some of that price is paid for by the taxpayer. And that tone of debate and occasionally the uh, sensitivity around it is a price worth paying for having healthy debate in a democracy. So, you know, I think I think it's good, Neve. I think it's good to see a politician coming out and saying, you know, there's a price to be paid and I'm very happy for you to pay it. Kind of reminds me of that scene in Shrek where the king stands up and says, some of you may die, but that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. <laughs> no, that's it. Because it's, it's always easy, isn't it, Gary, to be generous with other people's money. And here we have Pascal Dunn who's saying, you know, I think it's a great idea to give your money to all, the N- all these NGOs so that they can then advocate for the things that I happen to support. <laughs> I mean, he seems to have completely um, misunderstood, like, the not just the question, I think he actually probably did understand the question, but what the purpose of democracy actually is. And it's so that opposing views can be aired and opposing views can be heard. And then people decide where, which view they want to support or which laws should be enacted in relation in relation to those issues. But what he's actually saying instead is, you know, the government is taking your money and it will give us to people who happen to share the same opinion as us on almost everything from immigration to transgender issues to hate speech and everything else. And we're delighted to keep giving them that money because then they can have the kind of debate that we want to have in this country, which is the opposite of democracy. It's completely one-sided. It's anybody who has a different opinion is, is then of course set up by said NGOs who are, you know, so flush with the cash that Pascal has kindly given to them to call the rest of us far right or bigots or hate-filled if we disagree with them on any number of issues. I thought that there were a lot of things with what he said I thought were, was questionable, not least the idea that it is the government's place to pay people to encourage discussion. But his claim that, you know, this is about encouraging discussion makes it sound like, you know, they are funding all sides of various issues as opposed mm-hmm. to only funding very particular organizations who take very particular stances. And I know in the hate speech, for instance, uh, the charity that I do work for, the Evan Burke Institute, we put in a submission saying that the hate speech bill should not be brought in at all, that it was an abomination. Mm-hmm. And we were there for some of the discussions uh, that were had between the department and NGOs. And people can see this by looking through the submissions that were made. They're all public. Go and look at the organizations. It's kind of odd that if the government is paying these people to have a public debate, uh, you know, a rigorous public debate, that sort of thing that, as Pascal said, a democracy needs. Why was the EBI, which doesn't accept state funding, Mm. the only charity I can remember that said the bill shouldn't come in? It's kind of weird, isn't it, that You'd be paying all these people to have a debate, but they all land on the same side. Very strange. You know, I wonder, of course, you know, if it was suggested to Pascal that perhaps the EBI could get similar funding to any one of the NGOs that was that is set up precisely for this purpose to push through things like hate speech or to come out and engage the media in discussion as to why hate speech bills are so important. I wonder what the chances 
Gary, would be of you getting that funding? You know, I would imagine between zero and zero percent. And well, similar, similarly, like, for, say, for example, in relation to the controversies now around transgen- transgenderism in schools, like, what are the chances of an organisation like GenSpect, which, you know, bring people together, or the Irish Education Alliance, which speaks for parents of the Parents' Rights Alliance, what's the chance of them getting the same kind of funding as Tenny gets, for example, to, to push a certain agenda in schools? And again, I would imagine precisely zero. What are the chances of the Life Institute, you know, who I work with, um, getting the same kind of funding as the National Women's Council in order to give a different view on abortion? And again, the chances would be zero. So this is not about a healthy debate in democracy. It's about channeling taxpayer funds Funds which does not belong to Pascal, which does not belong to these NGOs, but putting it into the pockets or into the into the bank accounts of these flush NGOs so that they can sing from the same hymn sheet as the government. It's actually profoundly undemocratic. It's the opposite to what Pascal claimed. And I, he tried to bat it away when Ben asked him about it. But I, I think there is a real concern here. Like if you take a policy position on anything that you feel exceptionally strongly about and that you have every right to feel exceptionally strongly about whether it's the life issue i mean israel palestine there's a a limitless amount of stuff that people feel passionately about Mm. and would you be okay i mean is is pascal okay with the state turning around and then saying oh well we've decided to give money to a pro-life group or a pro-choice group or an israeli Mm. group or a palestinian group and you guys just have to accept that because we've decided that this is a conversation that we need to have, I think people can quite, quite fairly say, I don't want my money going to those. Ultimately, it's my money. Well, see, that's it. And, you know, I think there's, in addition to that, Gary, I, I because people might say, well, I, you know, there's a majority of people supportive of this issue, therefore that NGO should get funding, where only minority of people take this particular stance, so therefore that NGO should get perhaps less funding. But, it, bring, it puts the government in a situation then where they are deciding the debate, regardless of what percentage of the population supports or doesn't support um, a, a given issue or a given or a given position. The government is kind of deciding who gets the megaphone for an opinion on any particular issue. And, you know, obviously East Wall says no, gets no megaphone. They get no funds. You know, instead they get piled on by the kind of NGOs that are getting all the money from the government and called names for having a different opinion on immigration. It's a very, I think, dangerous road for the government to go down. And I don't think that's overstating it. You know, when they're taking what amounts in the end to millions and millions in taxpayer funding and feeding it to these people so that they can sit, that they can they can really promote the government's viewpoint, but it's all dressed up in, you know, civil rights organisations or NGOs or public interest or whatever. It's not a healthy thing in 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 Irish democracy. I think one of those things that, that people just don't really talk about, and I'm not sure if it's that people know it and it's just been accepted or it's just not widely known, is how recent the change was uh, for political parties to move from having to raise their own money to be paid mm. by the state. Yeah. And I actually, I think that had a major impact on our politics because before political parties always hated fundraising because you had to deal with the public and the members and the members said things to you that you would think were ignorant or wrong. And they might have policy positions or they might say that you had made mistakes and that they didn't <laughs> want to give you money. It was terrible for all involved. So they made the wise decision to simply 
take money from the state in proportion to how many votes they had. And I think that did real damage to them. When people talk about political parties now, one of the most common thing I hear when I'm talking to people who know politics and have been following politics for years and have been in political parties, and it's something I've said myself, is before when political parties did things, I disagreed with them, but I understood why they were doing things. It, like it made political sense. Mm. Now I think the political parties, because they've been insulated by that, they do things that don't make sense. Things that I think it, 20 years ago, they just wouldn't have done because they were still so immersed in the communities and they had to go to these people for money and they relied upon them for support that they always had to be careful that they actually represented people's views to some extent. And yeah. now I think, and there's actually a great book about this, uh, which listeners of my regular podcast, TRSI, which I will now promote, I will be aware of, called Ruling the Void. It's by a guy called Peter Mayer. He's very much of the left. He was over in the European uh, College of Europe. And he made the argument, he because he the book is not solely focused on Ireland, but because he's Irish, a lot of his examples are from Irish politics. And he made the argument that the political parties, that their grassroots were dying. And they used to say they were legitimate because you could look at their grassroots, you could look at their public support, and that's what made them feel they had a right to rule. But as the grassroots died, they needed to find other sources of legitimacy. And what they attached themselves to was what you would call stakeholder uh, democracy. They are legitimate because they deal with the right people and the right people believe they are legitimate. And I think between that and the public funding, political parties are in a very strange space. They have interests that are no longer, in many cases, aligned with those of the public, I think. Maybe that's going too far. I don't know what you think on this, Nate, but I think it's it's made them very weird beasts and it's it centralised a lot of power. And I remember the arguments made for in, fa no, in favour of bringing in this public funding for political parties. And it was centred around this notion that, you know, Fianna Fáil had the Galway tent and there was lots of corruption and there was lots of backhanders and deals being made for all, with all the political parties, not just Fianna Fáil, with builders and things like this. And, you know, favours have been called in and that was very problematic. So it provided, if you like, a handy excuse then to say, well, let's, let's do this instead. Let's just take all the money off the taxpayers according to how many however many votes we get in the in the most in the most recent election and i think you're correct there that it's another insulation isn't it it's another step which removes the parties from the ordinary person because you know it doesn't really matter if voters are unhappy with them they're still going to get a big chunk of change to spend in keeping the party afloat and making the party relevant and in, in attracting votes for the, for the party. So the argument might have been that it, it improved democracy and that it didn't make political parties reliant on big donors, but it certainly has made them also less reliant, as you say, on, on, on public opinion. And that's not a good thing. It's one of those things. It's very easy to argue against certain things because they're messy. Because they, you know, maybe there's corruption or maybe there's certain things. And you argue for this neater option where you can say, oh, well, there's no corruption. And people say, oh, well, you know, that's that's got to be the better option. And then the problem is often when you move towards it, it turns out there's a load of problems, but they're not obvious. Mm. So you think you've improved things where actually you've made things substantially worse. I but know, you can say, that's... oh, well, we've, we, you know, we got rid of that corruption and you've just got this burning trash heap behind you that no one has quite <laughs> noticed yet. 
<laughs> not yet. Now, speaking of money sloshing around, Gary, the big story this week, I suppose, the certainly most excited about the story on Tuesday evening was the people queuing outside Bank of Ireland for all that lovely lolly that didn't actually exist, but that you could miraculously take out of the ATM. Yeah, I'm going to preface my comment here by saying that I talked to John about this. And his position is that he thinks these people should be treated fairly and they shouldn't face any additional charges. Yeah. And that the bank should not be allowed to uh, basically profit due to their mistake. Yeah. Fortunately enough, John is not here. So I'm just going to put forward my idea, which is that anyone who took advantage of this should be severely punished and that the oh, bank should take out. No. The bank should treat it as an unauthorized overdraft at best and fraud at worst. Oh, come on, Gary. What's your basis for that? Fraud. No, my basis is this. Fraud. Fraud is a crime. If if you knew you didn't have enough money in your account and you heard about this and you went to the ATM to take out more money than you had, I think I'm absolutely comfortable saying, yeah, that should be treated as a crime. Well, you'd have to prove that. It would be difficult, yes. It would be very difficult. And I think think it's unfair to bandy about words like fraud. My understanding of it is, is that people realised this was happening because people went to their ATMs, you know, before before the news spread to, to take out cash. And the bank, the ATM actually gave them more cash than what they asked for. My understanding, and might might that be correct, but my understanding that was when this first came became, became apparent. I would agree with John, and I would agree with Matty McGrath, who I think issued an excellent statement saying that, you know, the, the bank should not be allowed to treat this as an unauthorised overdraft. It's their mistake. They're an enormously, uh, enormously profitable co- uh, bank, a bank which, um, you know, relied on the taxpayer to bail them out uh, in 2008 and, and the cost of which we are... We are still paying. It was, it was, it was a, I think, an enormous burden to the taxpayer. Um, and I think that's, that kind of brings me to this particular point under discussion that right now the banks are not popular with ordinary people, uh, partly because there's still this hangover from 2008. People are still sore about the fact that we were forced to bail out banks like AIB and Bank of Ireland. And also because the banks have been very quick to pass on the hike in interest interest rates that you know have been caused by the ECB's, the European Central Bank's response to inflation. And people are really feeling the pain now, especially people on tracker mortgages, of the huge increase in their mortgage repayments every month. But they're not getting the benefit of increased interest rates if they have money on deposits or money in savings. So I think people feel sore about that. And there's not a lot of goodwill towards Bank of Ireland or any of the banks in any case at this moment in time. But what what I was writing about today, Gary, was what I thought was really wrong was that and Gary were sent down to the queues or to the busy ATMs, not just to disperse people, but to stop them taking money out of the ATM. And it seems to me that there is no legal basis for the Gardaí um, having taken that action. You know, that. I cannot see the legal basis about this. They talked about public order requirements, but everybody knows that the Public Order Act is, is just used as a kind of get-out-of-jail out of card in the case where you don't have anything else to rely on. But I cannot see the legal basis under which a Garda 
could go to somebody standing in a queue for the ATM and tell them that they couldn't use their own valid bank card uh, at a valid ATM to take money out of their own account or to apply for money from their own account. So I, I have heard, I haven't seen the actual stats on this, so I'm not sure. So I'll just mention this in passing, mm-hmm. that while Irish banks are very slow to pass on increases in interest rates to savers, they are also quite slow in passing on increases in the mortgage rates, as in the full increases to those with mortgages or outstanding loans. I have not seen the stats on that, could be wrong, but I wouldn't be terribly surprised if that was the case, because Irish banks compared to other banks, are are not the worst in the world. There's loads of stuff they do poorly or when they should be treated more harshly. But I think the case where people are talking about how people should not be punished for the bank's mistake, absolutely Mm. agree. They should be punished for their own choices. Just because something is allowed, and there were videos going around of people talking about free money. There was videos of people going around buying TVs with it. The banks made a mistake. People chose to take advantage of that. And fundamentally, do you want to live in a society where the second something becomes possible and people think they can do it without punishment, they indulge in that? But but that, that's not really the issue here. The issue here is why did Gardaí feel they had the right to go down without a legal basis to the queues at the ATM and say to people that they could not use their cards they're valid bank cards, you know, as an ATM to access their own bank account. To me, like that's a very serious step towards, I don't know what the equivalent of political policing is in this instance, but of policing at the request of a private institution, which is what Bank of Ireland is. You know, I don't think it's true that the that the, 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 the banks, the banks have been much slower to pass on increases in deposit rates than they have been to pass on the increases um, uh, for mortgages on, on loans. You know, that's that's certainly established, I think, to the point where, you know, you, you, you've, you, they've been criticised from within their own representative organisations for the delay in passing on increases to, to deposit holders. But going back to what happened at the, the ATMs, like that's the key issue for me here, Gary. Obviously, I think people sometimes are foolish. Everybody should have realised that if you go and take the money out of the ATM, the bank is going to try to get it back off you, either when additional funds come into your own bank account or by chasing you to the courts. Like, there's no, absolutely no way Bank of Ireland is going to allow people to get away with that. Where I thought things got, you know, ropey was when Gardaí were sent down to stop people engaging in transactions without a clear legal basis. I, I thought that was, you know, like, on, on the legal basis, I imagine the guards would say it's under the Public Offences Act because the Public Offences Act covers absolutely everything. They'd probably argue that it was a breach of the peace or a potential breach of the peace and that they were allowed on that basis. Where I, I think I would agree with you is I think it looks very bad, mm. uh, given all of the current discussions about assaults, about there not being enough guards for certain crimes. Even the fact that, I mean, the CSO still doesn't trust the guard statistics. Mm. I think so. I think maybe I'm not I'm not 100% on that. But the last time I checked, they still didn't because yeah. they couldn't be sure of their accuracy. And then to have you know, a rapid response to a banking crisis is perhaps not the best PR move by the bank or by the guys. Yeah, 
I think so. Like the optics were just lousy. That's what I thought. And that's what I wrote on Grip today. I thought the optics were just terrible. You know, I th- there's a huge public, I think, outcry at the moment about the absolute state of the Dublin City Centre, about, you know, things like guard the uh, delay in, the, in guard response times, about calls to 999 being left to ring for up to five minutes or going unanswered. And people have this general sense that there's never a guard around and you need one, whether that's true or whether it's unfair to guards or not. That's the kind of perception that people have at the moment. And, you know, you, you, I saw people all over social media, and I think they had a point. And these were not people who were down with their bank cards in the queues. They were people who were just observing what was happening. And they're saying, gosh, you know, one way, if you want, if you want to, if you, if you feel the guards aren't coming quick enough, just say you're at Bank of Ireland ATM, and maybe they'll respond to a crime that's actually taking place. And like I thought, they were left themselves wide open to those kind of charges. The optics were, were pretty poor. Mm, it actually reminded me of... Um... You're familiar with the story of the Ring of Gygus. Enlighten me, Gary. The Ring of Gygus is uh, it's brought up by Plato in the Republic. And it's what he it's a story about a I believe it was a sheep herder called uh Glacon. And he finds a ring that makes him invisible. Mm-hmm. And the entire section is about is any person so just that if you remove them from all consequences, that they will not just go on a massive crime spree. And I generally take the 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 basis that no, no man is that just. And so you need to punish people and you need to, you know, not force them on the straight and narrow, but you need to, there needs need to be to, consequences. You need to have consequences. Well, I wouldn't take that or view else, of you know, people in general, to know, be honest. It, it starts with people taking too much money out of the uh, out of the ATM, and then they're turning invisible, and they're seducing the queen, and everything is broken down. Well, as you know, Gary, I'm a, like a ridiculous optimist, you know. So I think I, I believe that human nature is inherently good. So, from uh, as we said, uh, Plato to more modern crimes, Niv, what have we got? So. This is a case that came before the Dublin District Court last week. And I thought what was interesting about it was that it seemed to kind of be a microcosm, if you like, of a lot of what's wrong with the disastrous immigration policy um, at the moment. You know, and for people who aren't familiar with the case, it concerned a Georgian national who appeared before the court and he was accused. Obviously, this is a live case. So it's an accusation at the moment of stabbing a fellow resident in an unprovoked attack at a direct provision centre in Bray. And some of, I think, what came out in the details of the case were really interesting because they touched on a lot of what people feel has gone awry with the the asylum system. Firstly, that um, we weren't really sure that the the name given uh, to the accused in the case was actually his real name because he had conveniently destroyed his passport on upon arriving in Ireland to seek asylum. This is what the court was told by the detective in the case. And of course, he's not alone there, is he, Gary? You know, that the Department of Justice said uh, over the period of about a year, 60% of those who'd applied for asylum in Ireland had no identity documents. And Matt Tracy, I think, has written about this consistently and gripped you know, that more than 5,000 people who came here in 2022 claiming to be asylum seekers and again conveniently found themselves without any genuine uh, identification papers and here you you have somebody before a court now and you don't actually know who that person is and it's not the first time 
of course, this has happened. There's other cases have, have been reported uh, on gripped. And I think a key point is that we don't know how often this is going to happen again going forward because there are now thousands of people in the country without documentation and we don't really know who they are. But there were other details in the case, I think, which pointed to like these uh, huge flaws in the asylum system. The defendant here is from Georgia. It's not a war-torn country. And thousands of people have come here from Georgia and Algeria and other countries which are considered safe, claiming to seek asylum. Once they're here, they get into the system, they get into direct provision. They're entitled to housing and other supports, benefits. Um, and there doesn't seem to be any genuine effort on behalf of the government to stop this from happening, people coming here from which are obviously safe countries and remaining here then for long periods of time. But one of the third thing I think, thought, which was really interesting, is that the court was told that the accused was working, who is living in direct provision, is working as a labourer earning 700 euros a week and then getting 30 euros in social welfare a week in addition to that. And, you know, it begs the question. Why is somebody who has come here and who is living in free accommodation, not saying direct prison is, is amazing, but it's still free accommodation at a time when people are desperate to try to find somewhere to rent, where be, people are finding themselves uh, unable to buy housing, where we have record numbers of people homeless. You have somebody living here in direct provision on an annualised salary of, say, some 36,000 euros a year. Like, how can, how can, how, how how can that be possible? Why is that happening? It's almost like all of the recent decisions we've made in relation to asylum seekers, such as allowing them to work and allowing them to earn money while going through the process, make it easier for people who want to misuse the asylum process in order to effectively act as economic um, migrants, but who lack the qualifications or the ability to go through the official routes, it's almost like it, it's made it more attractive to them, which you would expect would put more, um, more pressure into the system and make it harder for legitimate asylum seekers to get through, both because there's more pressure and because the public are probably going to notice that a lot of people who seem like they're not legitimate refugees appear to be going through the asylum process. That's it. And, you know, I can imagine people reading this case or people who just notice these things happening in their own communities, like feeling understandably really angry about that. And it doesn't mean that they're far right. It doesn't mean even mean that they're unsympathetic to people who want to come here. It just means that they can see the system is being gamed and that people who are working and earning a decent enough salary are living for free while Irish people can't find somewhere to live and you know we're looking at numbers of young people now the number of young people who are emigrating again going up we're looking at people record numbers of Irish people becoming homeless we're looking at this ridiculous absurd figure of 68 percent of young people still living at home with their parents at an age where gen before now they would have been out making their own place in the world and you can see that how people think this is really unfair and how the system is just simply not working the strange thing is for for all of the the talk about the system now and how things can't be done there was a period it stopped about 2020 i can't remember how far back it had gone before there it was when charlie flanagan was still the minister for justice 
where they did what we're now told is impossible and they moved passport control to the steps of the aircraft. Mm-hmm. Uh, where they got in trouble is they basically just mass returned Georgians and Albanians who didn't have documents or had false documents or tried to claim asylum. And it was done with the rationale that these countries are safe and a lot of people were turning up without uh, documents. Mm. So put it at the um, the steps of the stair. And that led to a quite substantial reduction in asylum claims from those countries. Now, we're, of course, we're, we're now told that that's impossible. Uh, but mm. it wasn't It wasn't in 2020. It wasn't. Who made the decision, Gary, that that was impossible? You know, th- th- this is in relation to go back to Pascal, like all this nonsense about a healthy debate and all this nonsense about, you know, Ireland having better discussions or being a just better d- democracy because it NGOs the opposite is the case. Why is nobody asking those kinds of questions except for Gript and a few others? You know, who made the decision to stop something happening which was be which was effective in in attempting at least to control the number of people who are coming here and clearly gaming the system. Chancellors who are coming here claiming asylum when they're coming from safe um, areas and they simply want to get into the country and so they're destroying their passport en route. Like, why aren't those kind of questions either being asked or being answered? I think that the case also, I think, raised an issue which a lot of people feel uncomfortable discussing, but which I think needs to be discussed. Because it's something that affects both the people living in direct direct provision and the communities in which these centres are placed. And, you know, local activists would say these centres are being imposed on them. And that's in relation to kind of violence and, if you like, criminality, which is more likely to arise in transient communities and which definitely can be part of of migrant centres, but which is often, I think, underreported because the media don't want to create a discussion or a debate or around this around this issue. Now, perhaps they would argue they don't want people who are living in these centres to be unfairly portrayed. But, you know, there's one thing about wanting to avoid unfairly portraying people. There's another thing about not reporting on it at all. And... Uh, Again, like the, the man who's accused here is accused of uh, punching another man in in a completely unprovoked attack. The other man was also living in the direct provision centre and then following him out with a knife in his hand and co- according to the prosecution, uh, stabbing him in the shoulder. And like this is a following on from like one very well-known incident because it kind of, it was such a, it involved so many people in the Killarney Hotel last January where, you know, eight men were charged in connection with what was described by some media reports as a stabbing spree um, in the direct provision centre, which resulted in four people leaving hospital treatment. And then, of course, you know, Matt Tracy again writing about something that only emerged because of an FO. I request um, regarding the migrant centre in City West, which is one of the, the biggest centres in the country, if not the biggest. And that revealed that like armed Gardaí had been required to quell riots. Like that's an extraordinary statement. Um, and that there have been significant violent incidences, reports of serious injuries and other disquieting um, incidents happening. And you know, again, we need to discuss, be able to be discuss these things. You know, when you read reports like that, you it does you do say to yourself, okay, I can see if this is happening, that why people, for example, in East Wall have concerns about 300 people 
single men mostly being, being put into their communities. And they should be allowed to raise those concerns without being shouted down and without NGOs calling them far right and just simply trying to bully them into submission. I think you're right that a lot of people are nervous about uh, talking about this both publicly or even privately if they don't know the people they're talking to. And I see that amongst members of the general public, uh, other people involved with the media, politicians I've talked to as well. I think a lot of it is in Ireland, I think a lot of debates, we've gotten to the point where the more progressive type of people have taken a stance that any, even a reasonable complaint is a sign that you are far right, that you are mm. against your human equality, that you are basically scum. And the response is incredibly overblown to even the mildest criticism. So I think that stops a lot of reasonable people because reasonable people look at that and say, I just don't want to get involved in that. Like, that's insane. The problem I think you find there is that that doesn't mean that no one talks about it. It means some reasonable people will, but the conversation will then also involve a lot of very unreasonable people who just don't mm. care what you say about them. And mm. what you end up with is this mass of people who don't care what other people think about them screaming at academics who are screaming and NGOs who are screaming back that those people are far right and fascists. And the NGOs are, are right about one thing. The, the direct provision center is a shambles. It is in bits. Now, I think it should be reformed in a particular way, which would basically get people out of the country quicker whilst yeah. making you know, legitimate refugees. Absolutely. Like, absolutely those are, you know, that's fine. NGOs think it should be reformed, basically to you know, remove it entirely so that people can just come in at will. But something needs to be done with it. And instead, all we just get is like we've had years at this point of people screaming about it. And nothing ever changes. And it just comes under more and more pressure. And now it's spilled out of the direct provision centers. And we have people in hotels and tents and mm. God knows where they are all around the country. And the government seems to be you know, look at this and say, we're doing a good thing. When we told people, let's say Ukrainians, to come here because we would look after them. And then they got here and we had to say, here's a tent and the contact details for the nearest homeless shelter. I don't think you've really helped someone if you tell them that you're going to do something for them. And then when they get here, say, well, actually, we don't have the resources to do that, but we didn't want to be the bad guys and yeah. say, you know, we're limited in what we can do to help. So we've just given you the you know, a terrible situation uh, where people will resent you for being in that terrible situation. But, you know, we felt really good about it. So that's it. This is see, all balancing out. You see, that's it, Gary, because I think sometimes I think, well, a lot of these NGOs just live in La La Land, you know, and there's a magic money tree which will just pay for everything all of the time, you know, <laughs> to infinity and beyond. And that's why everybody can all you can bring all you can bring the entire world here and everyone will have a marvelous life. And, because that's not reality. And sometimes I just think, okay, you know, they're living in La La Land. But then Sometimes you have to say to yourself, like, they're not. These are smartish, educated people, you know, who who work and sometimes who work in these areas who help to develop policy. And really, I think a lot of it is about making themselves feel good, about letting the rest of the world, you know, 
see what great people they are. They're better than the rest of us. They want to help the whole world where we're these horrible realists who realize that there is a finite amount of money, there's a finite amount of housing, there's a finite amount of medical service. So that means there's a finite uh, amount of people who can come here. But we're, we're, we're the bad guys. They're the good guys. And the more they keep shouting about refugees being welcome and about opening the borders and about the government having to provide things that they actually can't provide, uh, the, the, be the better people they are and the more everybody will applaud them. And that, that's the track, I think, that they seem to be on. It's I don't know if you can keep excusing it anymore in as just kind of this <laughs> lack of an ability to see um, reality. Maybe it's actually just a, deli a, a deliberate uh, choice to kind of ignore reality because endlessly selling yourself as being the best person in the world because you're the most generous and the most kind um, is, is, a, is a way to be seen as being an amazing person. One thing that I actually find mildly irritating is the willful uh, lack of understanding about the phrase Ireland is full. Mm. And I've seen so many people respond to that by basically saying, well, actually, if we had the population density of wherever we could fit this many people in, Ireland certainly isn't full. Now, I can understand that as a rhetorical device, uh, as a political argument, but there seems to be an amount of people who legitimately don't, and I think willfully, don't understand the point that is being put across. And I'm not saying I agree with that point, by the way. I think there's actually quite a lot we could do that we don't do because we're so disorganized. We don't even think about doing it, let alone try and fail. But the point they're making is very clear. It's not to say that we could increase the population density. It's basically to argue if you have a hotel with 100 rooms and 100 people book in, the hotel is full. Mm -hmm. If you turn around and say, actually, with the land available to us, we could build thousands more room. That's no good if the hotel takes in 200 bookings. The hotel is still full. The, the argument is clearly that we are constrained by infrastructure and social and cultural factors and economic factors and how many people we can take. And as I said, you don't need to agree with that, but it's not a difficult concept to understand. Yeah. And instead, you just get this. Oh, we could have the population density of Calcutta. So clearly yeah. we can invite more people in. Like, yeah. Yeah. As I said, as a rhetorical device, absolutely understand it. But if you legitimately don't understand what's being said, you probably shouldn't be in the debate. Well, this is it. And I think, Gary, the right, you use exactly the right words there. This is a willful decision by people who actually know and understand the issue, but they're deliberately and willfully pretending to misunderstand it in order to argue that we should have open borders, that there is no limit to the amount of, of migrants that we can take in. And other things that I think they largely know are not true, but they're saying it because they're either ideologically supportive of that view or because they're attached to an NGO which is there uh, to serve a certain purpose. And the more they keep saying that their services are needed, the more they will keep getting money from nice people like Pascal Dunham. We were talking about, or I was saying that reasonable people will not, will for the most part, not put their head on this. But actually, when you look towards the academics and activists, something similar has happened. Like, I know academics in Ireland who have detailed, nuanced takes on immigration. Now, they would be on the left. 
they would be more pro-immigration than a lot of people on the right. But they have data, they have arguments, they know what they are talking about, and they just disagree. But they don't want to get involved in this debate to a large extent either, because then they're taking crap from people to their left who just don't want people to say anything but what they're saying. And it has to be this radical political position. And you see it all over Ireland. Like Irish people, I think, and you might not agree with this, Neve, for all of our reputation as being rebels and things like that, I generally find Irish people are very quick to bow to social pressure. I think everybody is. I think you, you're, you're imagining it if you presume in other countries that people aren't sheepish or they're not easily led or they're not, or they're not cowed by public opinion. I think that that's a, a phenomenon you see everywhere, especially, I have to say, probably with social media. People are so terrified of being cancelled or of getting Twitter pylons or anything like that. Like, it's great. I think one of the great things about uh, working for platforms like Gripped and, and others is that you're you're a little bit above the fray in that regard, you know. It, I, I don't care if it's if a whole lot of left wing groups decide to try and cancel me. They actually can't. You know, that's I suppose a position from which it's easy for me to wish that other, that other people then were more courageous in putting forward their view. But it is like we saw this in COVID as well, didn't we, Gary? That there were people, experts, you know, scientists, people who working in the field, medics, people who knew that there was a lot wrong with the kind of a policy the government was making sure that everybody else, that the general public, had to adhere to. But they didn't want to say it. They didn't want to put their heads above the power of it. I don't think that's an Irish thing. I think, sadly, it happens everywhere. You know, people value their reputation. They value their security. They value their job security. They they're, don't like being controversial. They don't like confrontation. They they run away from it, you know. And maybe the more the more comfortable we're kind of getting with modern living, the worse that's going to get because people feel they, they, they have they have they have, too, they have too much to lose, you know. But um, you'd hope this free speech event, maybe to finish it off, you'd hope this free speech event would embolden a few more of them anyway on September sixteenth. So get your tickets, oh, folks. Rock up. It, it's always good to see that. I mean, the RDS venue I think takes five hundred to a thousand people. So mm-hmm. hopefully we'll fill that. Mm-hmm. And it's always good to see 500 to 1,000 people who agree with you. I will say, I think you're absolutely right that it's a human trait. I'm not, I mean, I would include myself in the people who occasionally will do things or not oh. do things just to avoid mm-hmm. it. But I do think, you, I think as you, you meet people from different cultures, you can definitely see that some cultures care more. They're more agreeable. They're less mm-hmm. uh, positive of confrontation. And I think Ireland, partially because I think we're a small country, and everyone kind of knows each other. We're actually quite big into avoiding conflict and avoiding looking bad in a way that <laughs> like we're not the worst in the world, by the way. I've been to countries where it is. And like some of the Nordic countries are kind of famous for uh, for it in the Iron Law of Jute. Um, but I think it, it is a trait of Ireland, I think, um, in a way that is perhaps above certain other countries, but not the worst. But yes, yeah. come to the free speech event. Um, you see you there. Make us lose slightly less money. <laughs> You'll enjoy it, we promise. All right, Gary. Yeah, yeah, sure. Go on. Uh, don't hold me to that, but you should enjoy it. <laughs> Good stuff. All the best.